Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, and the last time the message was titled, A New Life. And it's really cool because somebody came actually forward to receive Christ after service last Sunday. They were attracted by God's Word, attracted with the pursuit and the prospect of a new life, so that was really a blessing to see. Today the message is titled, The Bible Points Here. Now, whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, Isaiah 53 is extremely pivotal to everything to the Jewish Messiah, to Christians believing in Jesus. You know, all these questions kind of point to this chapter. Mind you, it was written some 600 plus years, over six centuries before Christ came to the earth. Um, a lot of good stuff about the crucifixion before there was a crucifixion. I'll talk to you about the ancient cultures and where crucifixion originated. But at this point in time, there was no crucifixion. So how could anybody write something and it come to pass and it be true unless it's God's divine providence and prophecy? Uh, It speaks about Jesus Christ, what he would look like, his emotional state, his uh, the the mode of the crucifixion, who would be crucified with him, um, a lot about the Romans and what they do. And again, before the Roman Empire was even the Roman Empire. Now, because we live in the Princeton area, and I'm often responding to skeptics, I do apologetics, and I often answer questions before they're answered. So Pastor Joe, how do I know that the Bible wasn't written after Jesus, because you know it's a collusion fraud of Christians over thousands of years to make this Jesus somebody that he's not? Very simple answer. If you go into archaeology, if you go into manuscripts, you have the Hebrew Masoretic text which is circa 8, 9, 1,000 A.D. Okay, Jesus happened 2,000 years ago. We go back a little further. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls, circa 1st century B.C., 1st century A.D. Okay, well, it still could be a contrivance. Let's go back a little further. Any atheist, any archaeologist, manuscript expert believes and has verified the fact that the Septuagint is a valid version, okay, of the old scripture, right? And that was the entire Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. It was actually at the request of Ptolemy, who was running the the area at the time, but it was an attempt for 70 Jewish scholars to bring monotheism to the polytheistic Greek world. Very impressive. Now we're talking... 3rd century B.C. So even the atheist and the manuscript expert believes and knows that this is a valid text that predates Jesus Christ. Now, let's put this in perspective. I know that this was written roughly uh, circa 7th century B.C., but I'll give the skeptic, I'll give the skeptic, I'll concede to its 300 B.C. based on the Septuagint. I'll give them that. I know the truth, but you know, I always try to work with people to help them to understand the truth of salvation. Think about this. Our country is not even 300 years old. 
Look at all the differences. Look at all the changes that have happened since the colonial days in America. The technology, not even 300 years old. So let's put this in perspective. So if I concede with the skeptic and give them three centuries before, which is older than this country is, how the heck could anybody write all these things and hundreds of years later it comes to pass in vivid detail? So be prepared, if you are a seeker, to have your mind blown. Not by me, but by the Scripture. And we're going to look at this in four parts. So jumping in to Isaiah 53... Right off the bat, it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Christ, shall grow up before him, the Father, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we did not esteem him. So one out of four, I'm being facetious, is, oh my goodness, we have the wrong Messiah. Now this, again, prophesied before it even happens. Who has believed our report? And the more you get into prophetic speak, the more you get into colloquialisms and things like that, you understand that God... Um, is a reasoning God, and when He speaks to His people, He reasons with them. So sometimes God in His prophetic Word will ask a question or He'll write down the thoughts of the people before they're even born. And, and that's what you have going here. Uh, right off the bat, people say to me, well, I don't understand it for the large part, not all, because the entire church in the beginning was Jewish. This whole Jesus thing, you know, that started with the Jewish people, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Uh, So people will say, well, how come he can't be the Messiah if the majority of his people had rejected him? Well, right here, before it even happened, it's telling you that they would reject him, and there's a reason for that that I'm going to get into. But understand, there were many messiahs. If you actually study uh, messiahs rising and falling, there was a lot of them. And the Romans were sure to put them down quickly because they didn't want the mob you know, the majority overpower their soldiers and threaten the Roman, uh, the Roman Pax Romana. So what happened was they put down these messiahs, and no one's ever heard of a Thutis or a Bar Kokhba. I know who he is because I, I'm familiar with this stuff. But these were guys who rose up and said they were something, they were killed, and everybody scattered. Nobody worships them today. So this, you can look at this from so many angles. You can look at it from archaeology. You can look at it from history. You can look at it from common sense. It's all in there. Uh, But, let me just say this, how tragic it is when people think they know better than God. The people wanted a conqueror. They wanted a a sword-bearing, and there were plenty of mighty warriors in Jewish history. But God was going to give a suffering servant instead of a a conquering Messiah. And, And we'll talk about that. But again, we can do it today, can't we? Right? God establishes something we start questioning, we start, well, God should do this, or if I was God, I would do this. Imagine the hubris of that, if I was God. I mean, people say that today. You know, but, but this is, listen, doesn't matter what area it's in, people do question God's judgment. In the end, we'll see it all is going to make sense. Uh, it says that the arm of the Lord, now, if you've been with us the last few months, we keep reading about the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord was God's power. His power to deliver His people. There's a little twist in this. The arm of the Lord here is to put forth fragility, right? Is to put forth this 
this Messiah, this vulnerable coming in the form of a man, starting with a baby, and then growing up and dying for the sins of the people. Again, a lot of what God does is opposite of what we think. When we look at the first century in Jesus' teachings, you know, the, even the disciples got caught up. They wanted to be on his right hand and his left. They wanted to be his lieutenants, his generals. And Jesus is like, you guys got it all wrong. You want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be humble. You guys aren't being humble. So they learned a lot of hard lessons walking with the Lord. And we learn hard lessons when we read the Scripture. So verse 2, it says that he would grow as a tender plant. That was a, um, a metaphor. He was, grew up as a vulnerable baby, started in, in the womb. It was said that he would be a root. Isaiah 11 tells us that he was from the bloodline of Jesse. He was from the root of Jesse. Now, again, I'm not even talking about the New Testament yet. Right now, we're just deep into the Old Testament. Um, a friend of mine, I have many Jewish friends, and we were working somewhere at somebody's house a long time ago, and uh, they had a library, and I pulled out of the library. It was now the, not, no Christian contrivance here, the American Jewish uh, Publication Society Bible, Old Testament only. I opened it up to Isaiah 53. I read it to him. He goes, I've never seen that before. He goes, and I can't even argue with it. He goes, but I'm just not ready yet. We can't will somebody into the kingdom. We can't force, we can't debate someone into the kingdom. That has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. But we can use what we know to bring people to a place of, of salvation. And that's the desire for everyone. Jew, Gentile, pagan, atheist. It doesn't matter. Christ died for everybody. It says that Jesus had no form or comeliness and no beauty to be desired. So, you know, what does that mean? It means that when people saw him, if they weren't spiritually in tune, they would walk right by him. He didn't look like a celebrity. He didn't look like the paintings of the gorgeous Jesus with strawberry blonde hair and, and green eyes. I mean, with the perfect features and, you know, refined nose and cheekbones. Um, probably that's not what he looked like. Because the point wasn't his appearance, right? The point was who he was, you know? And it just goes to show you, again, what is important to people and what is important to God. You ever see, and I think it's kind of sad and it's quite mean, but, you know, I look at, I read a lot of news, I look at online news. Every so often they'll, they'll show these pictures of photographers who find a celebrity who's walking the dog or going to the store. It's stars without makeup. It's kind of mean. And they take a picture of them, not done up, and then they take a picture of what they look like in the movie and they compare them. It's kind of humiliating if you think about it, but... Why don't these stars make these movies without the makeup? Because we live in a very plastic culture, that's why. You know, and what God thinks is a lot different than what people think. He's not about appearances, right? The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 16:7 that man sees the outward appearance, but God sees the heart, and that's what he's concerned with. Um, you know, you can even see ministries today that are so... There was a, a term from one of my favorite pastors, Sandy Adams, uh, the term is called soulish. And basically it has to do with the mind and how the mind perceives things. So he was speaking about these soulish ministries that really the Holy Spirit's not a part of it. It's more of a production. It's a Hollywood knockoff. The music, the light shows, the, believe it or not, in some churches they have fog machines. One pastor rode up onto his stage on a Harley Davidson and spandex. I don't get that, you know what I'm saying? I don't know what that has to do with the Word of God, but some of these ministries ruin people because it, it, what they, it trains them, like Pavlov's dogs, to 
only be able to react and think that there's an experience with God when the hair stands up on the back of their neck. I've said this and I I say this as a knock to myself. A 12-year-old could come up here and read this and you'd be amazed. And that just means that it isn't me. It means that it's the Word. It's powerful. It's the material that I'm using. So, verse 3, he speaks about the deep rejection of Christ before it occurs. Now, this gives hope to the persecuted church. In America, Christianity can be very, very different than what goes on in the rest of the world. You know, we're, the United States is only a small part to, to, topographical and uh, population-wise, etc. When you look at Christians who inhabit the entire planet, a lot of them are being persecuted. They don't have the freedoms that we have here. And you know what? They get to read this and see, you know, we're not, you know, the, the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it people. You know, we're suffering. You know, we're being persecuted. And then they read the Bible for the truth of it, and it gives them comfort. Because some of these ministries want you to believe that, you know, you're only being blessed by God if you're making it in this world. And that is so not true when you read the true Scriptures. The Jesus of the Bible is an embarrassment to shallow Christians who don't know their word. Keep that in mind. The true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, he's an embarrassment to shallow Christians who don't know their word. And I can tell you, Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted. It's an amazing thing. He came down in the form of his creation. And it's, there's a whole legal issue that has to do with this. You know, when God created humankind and, and sin entered the bloodline, it, it just made a mess. It, it, it cursed the bloodline, so to speak. So what Christ did was he came to undo it. And the way he undid it was to come in that same bloodline, fully God and fully man, right? To be that substitutionary atonement for our sins to reverse that curse of sin. So there's a, there's a legal aspect to this as well. You know, God can do anything, and, but there's some things that God can't do. God can't die. God can't lie. And God can't just undo and ignore justice. Justice has to be dealt with. So we see why Christ had to do what he did. Verse 4, we continue. It says, Surely, now remember, this is the Old Testament, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, our sins, our willful sins. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. In other words, the people saw in the first century that didn't know anything, Christ on a tree, well, it was a form of Roman capital punishment. He must have done something wrong. Well, right here it says that he was smitten. He was not only crucified by the the Roman government, but he bore the sin of the world, not because of anything he did. It's because of what mankind did. You see what I'm saying? And six, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So two out of four is Jesus took the place of our judgment. Again, Romans 5.12 tells us that sin spread throughout the entire creation and had to be undone um, because you know, there had to be, you know, there had to be a, a, a propitiation for this sin. There had to be justice. God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. So how does he fix everything without ignoring his justice? And this is the way he did it. If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's one verse and it really 
lays it all out and it makes perfect sense. The Apostle Paul says, For he, meaning the Father, now I go into my Hebraic Roots Bible, I go into my Greek versions, um, you know, it's all there. For he, the Father, made him, the Son, who knew no sin. It's not like Jesus was like, what's sin? What it means, that Greek word means that he had no intimate familiarity with sin. He's God. God doesn't sin. So he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this is a, a switching of identities. Talk about, the, talk about identity theft, right? Uh, Jesus on the cross took our identity. My sin, your sin. I mean, who knows how many, what's the number? It's exponential. He bore the sins of the world on that cross. And he destroyed it in a sense so that the Father could judge the Son while he was on the cross so that we could be free. However, you have to believe. You have to trust in that sacrifice. And when it happens, you see the switching happen. What happens is we get Christ's righteousness. We're not righteous. I'm not righteous. I'm your pastor and I'm not righteous. But anything good that I am comes from the fact of my trusting in His sacrifice for my sin. So, so the, the punishment that I deserve for sin was on Christ on the cross and the Father dealt with that. And then when I believe and trust in that sacrifice, I receive His identity, so to speak. It's, again, it's... it's People don't realize how, how in-depth this whole thing is. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was a scapegoat, right? The, the high priest would figuratively lay his hands on the, the goat and send it into the wilderness. And we, where do we get the word scapegoat from? From the Bible. You know, today we live in a culture that's, that tries to sanitize everything Judeo-Christian, but no matter how you try to do it, we still use words that come from the Scripture. Scapegoat comes right from the Scripture. Uh, so Jesus was our scapegoat in a sense. For he has borne our grief and he has carried our sorrow. Everything Jesus did was vicarious. It was by substitution. And Hebrews 4 tells us that we have Jesus. We have a, a high priest. We have a creator. We have a God who can empathize with us. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Again, for us. Verse 5, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for iniquity. The chastisement was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. When we read the Scripture, this has to be one of the most redundant chapters in the Bible. It talks about sin. It talks about iniquity. It talks about transgression. It's all the same thing. But with some nuances to it. It talks about Jesus being crushed. It talks about Him being you know, his stripes. It talks about him being wounded. It talks about in the Hebrew, him being born through as in form of piercing. It's redundant, redundant, redundant. I'm not going to go over every word and I'm not criticizing it. What I'm saying is it's as if God knew that in the first century and beyond, people would be such doubters about this that he had to keep repeating himself, right? And in the scripture, I was always taught that when God continues to repeat himself, it's something to pay attention to because people will pick it apart. They'll go, well, let's see, crushed, you know, all the... And I was this way in my 20s before I became a Christian, you know, sitting around with a beer with my friends and let's talk about the Bible because we've got nothing better to talk about and just talking stupid, just trash talking, th things that you've heard somebody said or something you saw on TV instead of actually reading it and seeing what it says. And this is what people do. 
So God's like, you don't like iniquity? I'll give you transgression. You don't like transgression? I'll give you sin. You don't like crushed? I'll give you, he was pierced through. You don't like pierced through? I'll give you something else. So very redundant chapter this morning, but for good reason. Wounded, the Hebrew word is kolal, which means to be pierced or to be born through. When we take this with Psalm 22.16, it says that his hands and feet, again, another Old Testament scripture, that they were pierced. Now understand this, that crucifixion, the Jewish people didn't institute crucifixion. Jewish culture, what's going on here? Well, what is all this piercing, piercing, Messiah's getting piercing? We don't understand this. The Persians, so at the time this was written, the Assyrians are on their way out. The Babylonians are on their way up. After that, they go down. Uh, the Persians go up. Then after that, the, the Greeks beat the Persians. You know, Battle of Thermopylae passed, Battle of Marathon, good stuff. Uh, and then after the Greeks come the Romans. So at the time that this was written, and this is the beauty of prophecy, you know, the prophets would come through the town and they would, they would speak about what God says, they would write it down, people would read it, and they'd scratch their heads, they'd try to figure it out until it actually happened. Then they go, oh, now it makes sense. But there was no piercing. Jewish capital punishment was stoning, right? Stoning. Had nothing to do with piercing. It, it, the, 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 the injuries were internal, had nothing to do with losing your blood, any of that stuff. So the Persians kind of started this whole crucifixion thing. As it went through the different kingdoms, the Roman Empire perfected it in a sick way. They would, they would crucify, they would try to keep people alive as long as possible while they were writhing in pain on those, those, that cross, and they would put the crosses along the highway so that people coming in and out would realize, don't mess with Rome. How did the Rome, Romans have their Pax Romana? through fear and intimidation. So God knew all this was going to happen, but nobody else did. (laughs) Fascinating. It says, now understand this too, that, that Rome unwittingly, thinking they were getting rid of Jesus, helped him to die for our sins. And what I mean by that is that, first of all, when you read the scripture, it's, it wasn't the whippings that, that save us. It wasn't, anything man can do it was the fact that understand that in the old testament the sacrifices the lambs blood had to be let and the priest would take the blood and sprinkle it on the uh, mercy seat in the temple right Uh, it was an atonement uh, a prefigurement an archetype so to speak Uh, when christ came he couldn't die by stoning he had to die the same way that the sacrifices perished leviticus 17 11 right God says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you, right, to make atonement on the altars for your soul. Right? The only way for sins to be forgiven, according to the Old Testament, was for blood to be shed. Of a, of a vicarious, of a, a substitution. You see what I'm saying? Again, I'm, I'm, this is all Old Testament, folks. Except for 2 Corinthians. <laughs> I used that one from the New Testament. But you've got to admit, if you're a seeker, it's like, wow, this is, I have a, a, a Jewish, one of my Jewish friends, and she, everything I say, she goes and flips the pages, and I'm like, you're smart. You're not just taking what I'm saying. You're, she goes, I've got to go back into the Old Testament. I have to read this, which is awesome. That's what we're supposed to do. You know, that's why you have Bibles in front of you. you. Don't just believe what I say. Do your research. But you better do your research, because one day we're all going to stand before God. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help. I'm not trying to be anything else but that. Uh, He was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed meaning to be under a burden. Sin was a burden to the living God. He didn't deserve that. Right? That was like the first time in eternity that God actually experienced 
sin upon himself because he's perfect. God doesn't sin. But he did it because he loves us. Please keep that in mind. Ah, Pastor Joe, I didn't know that this was so intricate. So many nuts and bolts and moving parts. Now, it's also very simple. Just believe and trust in Christ. He did all the moving parts. That's not for us to worry about. But we're a church and we teach. So that's what I'm doing here this morning. It's just where we are um, in Isaiah. Romans 5 tells us, it says, the chastisement was upon him for our peace. Romans 5 tells us that because of sin, there is enmity between mankind and a holy, pure, just God. It's just the way it is. We have chosen to take the root of sinfulness. God is perfect and holy. There's a chasm. There's a gulf. There's a gap. Romans 5 says there's enmity. People say, I feel God. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, and you don't know the Scripture, then I don't know what you're feeling. Because to worship God, the Bible says, is to worship Him according to truth and the truth of His Word. Verse 6, it says, We like sheep have gone astray. Sheep are prone to wander. That's why many times in the Scripture, God characterizes human beings as sheep. And I can be a sheep sometimes, you know what I'm saying? I, I did a lot of wandering in my life, and I finally found my shepherd. I'm, you know, in the right place now. Uh, Judges 17 tells us that in the days of the judges, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We call that subjective morality, right? And you hear this a lot. And I used to say it before I was saved. I never killed anybody. Actually, I was a cop. So I had a badge. I I represented the law. Surely I'm going to heaven. Well, I'm so glad I found Christ (laughs) because it would have been... uh, a wake-up call if I would have died in my sins. You see what I'm saying? Um, subjective morality instead of objective morality. What does God say? I can read the paper. I could read about that horrible synagogue shooting, and, and that's vile to me. That person needs to be punished. But you know what we do as people? We do a comparison. Well, I never did that, and I never killed anybody, and I never you know, aggravated, assaulted somebody, um, so I'm good. No, God says all sin is loathsome and it's got to be punished. And this is the way I'm going to do it. Proverbs 14.12 in the Old Testament says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it leads to death. The hubris of mankind to think that we can just demand that God open the door to His heaven and we can just come in. That's hubris and that's, that's ignorance. And that's why we need to read the Scripture. But... Jesus stood in your place. Jesus stood in my place. So now I'm clean. When God sees me, He sees the finished work on the cross that His Son did for my sins. I'm clean, which is great. And I didn't do it for me. He didn't do it because I have a title called pastor. Christ did it for me. The finished work of Christ on the, on the cross. You know, this is important too because... Again, you've got to be careful with feelings. People do this. They let their emotions... And emotions are good. Emotions are great. It makes us human. But we can't rely on our emotions. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the, the feelings that we have towards God, are they based on truth? Are, are they based on what the Scripture says? Are they based on what the Lord desires? And I've used this example before. I can have a favorite actor, know his family, know where he lives, know all of his movies, and know the lines of in his movies. And he's out somewhere in New Jersey, and I'm like, oh, my favorite actor. And I go up to him, and he looks at me, and he tells security, tackle that guy. And I'm like, oh, I love you, though. You're my favorite actor. He's like, I don't know you. 
You see what I'm saying? When we, a relationship with God is a two-way street, right? And we know Him through worshiping Him in truth and through Christ and what He did on the cross for our sins. We continue, verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison or confinement and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So three out of four is the circumstances surrounding Christ's substitutionary death for us. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. Jesus didn't complain. He didn't demand his rights. He just went with it because of his love for us. You know, sometimes we complain. I got to admit, I complain sometimes. And, you know, when I read the scripture, I got to catch myself and say, especially, I don't know, maybe something surrounding ministry. I'm having a bad week, whatever. Jesus Christ went to the cross for me. He didn't complain. He didn't have to. He did it willingly. Led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. Again, reminiscent of the Old Testament and the sacrifices that were made at the temple. Jesus went through six trials. Six trials. Some because of the religious echelon. Some because of the Romans. They didn't know what to do with Him. They finally decided, well, let's crucify Him. It says, who will declare His generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. So, based on history, we can extrapolate that he lived to probably around 33 years old. He had no children. He didn't raise a family. He was cut off. In the Hebrew, that always indicates a violent death. You didn't die from old age. If you were cut off, you read the Old Testament, the word is used a lot. It was a a violent end of life. Well, he was crucified. Again, this is in the Old Testament. Now, my position, everybody has different ideas on this, but my position, and this is why when you really know the Word of God, you, you know how to pick out fakes. Because like, there's some weird stuff out there, and I actually was reading um, an article about archaeology, and there was, there was like the gospel of Jesus' wife or something, and very quickly, the experts, not Christians, the experts in the field, because there's a lot of money in archaeology. So unwittingly, the archaeologists help us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The manuscript experts. No one's going to buy something that's a fraud. We're talking millions of dollars for each little fragment and stuff. So, sometimes I lose my place. I just keep going and going, and I was going somewhere. <laughs> wow. Okay, I'm back. That's why I have notes. That's what happens when you hit 51. <laughs> you just, whoo. Okay, so I'm leading up to something. Uh, just some of these weird ideas, some of these weird, they're just really antagonistic to the gospel, antagonistic to anything God's word. My opinion on this whole thing about Jesus getting married and having kids is, remember, this is fully God. The only reason he took the form of a man was not to procreate, was to die for our sins, was to undo what Adam did. So when you understand the scripture, in my mind, when Jesus was on the earth, he looked at every woman as his daughter. So where do people come up with these things? 
Every single female and every single male was his son. You see what I'm saying? So the whole thing about getting married and having kids, that's weird. So it just doesn't jive with when you read the entire you know, codification of Scripture. It makes no sense at all. He was stricken for our transgressions. Again, more repetition. Stricken. He, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. So the way crucifixion worked was, you know, just like anywhere else, if you had enough money and, you, I don't know, maybe you convicted of something, um, you know, you could pay off the Roman government and they'd be nice and cut your head off instead of make you suffer for hours on the cross. It's just the way it worked, right? So for the most part, when you looked at this, uh, people that were crucified were insurgents, they were murderers, they were, he was crucified with the worst of, of people. You see what I'm saying? But when they took him down, uh, a wealthy man who had become a Christian went to Pilate and said, listen, I, I, just, I need his body. I, I don't, you can't throw him in a dump like everybody else. So he took him and he was able to bring him into a sepulcher or a hewn out stone. Uh, and that's where he was put until he was resurrected from the dead. But here you have this intricate de- detail over six, I've got to keep saying this, over 600 years before it takes place. And for the skeptic, I'll give you 300 years, not a problem. It's still amazing at 300. So, you know, you go, you go through this and it's, it's pretty much mind-blowing. Verse 10, continuing on, last few verses. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him, He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So four out of four is that from God's perspective, this was the only way to deal with the sin problem. And from God's perspective, it was a success. So let's look at that. It pleased the Lord to crush him to make an offering for sin. Sometimes I take the role of the polemic on on person, on purpose. So I, I take the role of the antagonist. So what is God a sadist? He, he was pleased to, to crush his son? The answer is no. Pleased, understand that word, pleased meaning that he was satisfied that justice was served for sin. What Christ did at the cross satisfied God's sense of justice, but also his sense of love that gave mankind, no matter where they are on the planet, the opportunity to be saved. And from God's perspective, that's a success. Now, we still have the problem of free will. I heard the gospel many times in college and in my 20s, and you know, I just, probably the last time that I heard it and I went to a Bible-believing church, um, I actually said to myself, why am I running from God? He's been after me you know, for so many years in a good way, uh, but I had that free will to continue to reject him. But God is a, he's a loving God. He gives us a lot of opportunities, but you know, don't play Russian roulette with your salvation either. You know, saying don't just keep putting it off. And people do that. Jesus was made an offering. If you look at the Old Testament, right? The Apostle Paul speaks about the drink offering. 
In the Old Testament, you have the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering. Jesus fulfilled all the offerings. Amazing. When you start looking at all these Old Testament offerings, Jesus, through His death on the cross, fulfilled them. And the uh, message is titled, The Bible Points Here. But I would also say that here points everywhere. Because you see that I keep going. I must have referenced 20 scriptures. I don't know if anybody's taken a tally of that, but the Old Testament here, Leviticus, I mean, all these different scriptures, Proverbs, it's amazing. So the Bible points to this one event that's so important for humankind, but that one event is pointing everywhere else, right? and, and I'm, I'm, I'm bringing that out in, in the message. You know, it's funny when people say, well, you know, the Bible was written by a bunch of old men that were colluded to this. This is the weird thing. The Bible was written, 66 works, over a period of arguably 2,000 years, different cultures, three different languages, cultures that never met each other. What's the collusion? So somebody died, and 50 years later, another prophet rose up, wrote something. When you're dead, what does it matter? If there is no God and there is no afterlife, it doesn't even make sense. But it's just too, it's too ubiquitous. It's too for anybody to get together. And I mean, it, even with, if they had our technology, they still couldn't do it because they lived in different time periods. It just, there's just so much logic to it. It says, My servant shall justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. Um, justification means to cleanse or to make righteous. We can't do that on our own. You know, religion can't do it. And it's funny because I talk about religion and I talk about how religion can't get you to God. And people say to me, they scratch their head. They're like, wait, isn't there a big cross on the front of this church? <laughs> there's pews, there's an altar. How is this not a religion? What we're trying to show you is the way to Christ. It's a relationship. We don't need to be the middleman. We're just showing you. We're, we're opening the door like somebody opened the door for me. Right? With the expression said, we're just a bunch of beggars that found bread and want to show other beggars how to find that bread. I was a beggar. Now I get to show people where the bread is. <laughs> so, but I'm not the bread. This church isn't the bread. Christ is the bread. He's the bread of life. It's good stuff, isn't it? It's just so pure. Because man is not, we're not getting in the middle of this. We're just pointing the way. And that's what Jesus told us to do when he left. That was part of the Great Commission. He said he will prolong his days. Now that doesn't seem to make sense because he was crucified. Well, when you take the, the resurrection, you take the 40-day ministry on the earth in his resurrected form and the ascension into heaven, well, his late days are pro prolonged because he's still, you can't kill God. He's, the Son is at the right hand of the Father. That's what the Scripture tells us. It says, He shall see His seed. That usually is an indicator of progeny, of children. However, after the resurrection, the church was His seed. He gave birth, the Bible says, to the church. So we're His seed. We're His children. The Bible says, do you want to be a child of God? You trust in Christ? He's adopted you into His family. All these different Scriptures. Um, a little, I'll leave you with a little mind-bender before we close. The perfect law of justice, when Christ was in eternity before the first century, that He helped craft justice for sin, punishment for sin, is the same law that He allowed to condemn Himself by dying on the cross for our sins. Interesting. It says that He would divide the spoil. Now this is, this is war and battle speak. In the, Old, in the Old Testament. It was like the victorious army would conquer and, and take the spoils. It would be a victory. But 
from the world's perspective, it didn't look like he conquered anything, did it? You ever see those memes? I think they're kind of cute. <laughs> um, you know, what my boss thinks I do all day, <laughs> what my parents think I do all day, what I really do all day. And there's three pictures of something completely different. What does the world see about what Jesus did on the cross? A complete failure, <laughs> right? And it's funny because I love talking to atheists. I never get offended. I just smile and they're wondering why I'm smiling because I'm, I'm coming back with something. Because I love to talk to people and, and disarm them from their fears and, and their antagonism towards God and try to just maybe peel some layers off of the onion so they could get closer to God. That's my goal. My goal isn't to argue with people. But what does the world see? It sees a complete failure in Jesus Christ. From a historical perspective, you look at it completely secular, that's a joke. And you Christians are a bunch of weirdos. You worship some dead guy on a tree. Well, I've heard it. That's what the world sees. What do we see? The blessing here is that God has, and I say this a lot, God has this curtain, right? And the curtain is the facade of our culture. It's the facade of what we think we know and what we think we see. And he pulls back the curtain sometimes and shows us what the inner workings is in the spiritual realm. What we see is an opportunity for salvation. You know, people, uh, they, they have a pension, uh, they save up money, they, they take uh, luggage on a plane. Everybody prepares for everything. Most people don't prepare for death. I'll just wing it when I die. Whew. Wow. This is all you've known and you want to wing it and tell God, I didn't kill anybody so I deserve to go to heaven? Yikes. This is the make-believe world that we live in. This pulpit, the concrete floor. I mean, when you look at the atomic level and you look at the, uh, the neutrons and the protons and the nucleus and you see, well, what keeps protons, especially a larger mass uh, atomic level, what keeps those, those protons from coming apart because they're supposed to repel? The strong nuclear force. What is the strong nuclear force? We don't know, but it keeps the nucleus together so everything doesn't come apart. And then you look at the, the nucleus and you look at the electrons and you see there's a whole lot of space between the nucleus and the electrons. A piece of steel that's extremely heavy has a whole lot of holes in it like Swiss cheese. That's all we are, folks. We're made up of atoms. We're made up of, and they keep finding smaller particles. But this is the facade. The real thing is God's world, which lasts forever. It's eternal. And when we die... We decide whether we're going to submit to him and, and trust Christ as a Lord and Savior or we're just going to keep rebelling and, and, you know, take a chance. What does God see about what Jesus did on the cross? He sees victory, victory, victory. He sees a way that the satanic world, uh, if you read Psalm 22 in the Old Testament, which is even older than this book, it goes into real detail about the crucifixion. It's incredible. It speaks about the demonic realm that actually were watching the crucifixion and they were, their, their mouths were, they were gaping. They were salivating. They, were, they thought we're finally going to get rid of Jesus. And they didn't know that he was going to rise again. Victory. They didn't know that, that the, the demonic realm that has such a hold on our culture God was going to be able to rip that away from them and that people were going to be able to come back to God. In the first century, Jesus speaks in, in all these metaphors and he speaks about 
at the time that he lived and what he was going to do, he said that the kingdom of heaven is, is being crowded, that people are like pressing into the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about souls. This is what he did in the first century, and there's so much more to it. So I want to leave you with this. All of God's word points to here. So I want to leave you with Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Now that Jesus did all the heavy lifting, this is our responsibility. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When you actually go into the original language, it's also not only spiritual rest, but psychological rest. When we get the spiritual thing right, we start to become at peace, the Bible tells us. We have peace with God, and it doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect, but we start to have more of a peace than we've ever had before. He says, take my yoke upon you. This is a, a, an individual interaction, Jesus, with every person. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, that word again, for your souls. He said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're a seeker and you came here today, you just happen to, and I don't believe in coincidences, you happen to run into today a portion of Scripture that speaks about the whole details of the Messiah, including the fact that people would not believe it. The details, the intricate details. It's not an accident that you're here this morning. So Jesus says, come. I say, come. And uh, you know what? Start a new life. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you. Let the